Yes, the theme of the month is peace. We're taking a fruit of the Spirit each month, and we're just running through it. We've done faith, we've done gentleness, and November is peace. And the title of the message today is An Unpopular Peace. So the fruit of the Spirit from the book of Galatians, the letter to the churches in Galatia, are as follows. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Would anybody mind if this, these were the general characteristics of your experience of life? Would you be upset? Would this be a problem? But it's not normal, is it? Um, that's right. The world is a broken place. Long way back, our first parents rejected living a life of uh, in paradise under the rule of God's word. They wanted a bit more independence than that uh, existence had to offer. And they, they lost all kinds of stuff and gained sin in their hearts and sin in their children's hearts and every kind of catastrophe to follow after that. But God is doing this great rescue plan through Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And right now, we live in an age where we are being invaded from heaven with the character of God. He grabs people's hearts, gives them a new birth, and fills them with the Spirit so that the uh, characteristics of heaven can be experienced on earth now through the Holy Spirit. And if you've been with us, we just throw some Greek up here every once in a while. Here's your nerd word, Irene. Everybody say Irene. Irene. Okay, awesome. And it can be used to mean a state of concord, peace or harmony, or a state of well-being, peace. And the first message we did on this was talking about coming into peace and harmony with God through the gospel. Last week we talked about having that state of well-being, inner peace, and today we're going to be talking about peace in the world amongst people groups through the gospel. I'm going to pray. Can you pray for me and with me? Uh, Father God, Your word teaches us that it is important to you that different peoples from different places come together in Christ and learn how to live together in a way that shows the fruit of the Spirit. We know from your word this is your plan. And we know from history that the world does not want it or wants to try to achieve it without you. And the church has often got in the way of what you have wanted to do. So Lord, I pray that today you forgive my sins and forgive our sins and move us forward into being the church and a people who display everything that Jesus won on the cross. Would you do this as we are in your presence now by the Holy Spirit? And I ask this because these are days where we are hungry to see the reality of Jesus on display in the world. And amen. All right, so I call this message an unpopular peace because it's not, you know, if you go to a group of people and say, I want peace, it's not like people in general are going to be like, that's a stupid idea. Most people have an idea of peace. Most people want some peace. Most people like to feel like they're people who would advocate for peace or seek peace. Um, Have things been getting better in the last few years, would you say? It doesn't look like it. Um, But God's got a way that he's been working towards peace amongst people groups. But it's not a popular method because there's no money in it. Uh, There's no angling for promotion in it and there's no promise of self-righteousness or a sense of superiority in it so if you can work for peace knowing that you won't get any money you won't get promoted and you won't get to feel good about yourself when you're done we can work with god and his plans for world peace 
But those things are very appealing to Canadians. And so we like to try to mix it in there. Are you sure I can't seek peace in a way that's going to win me like a Nobel Prize or something like that? Are you sure we can't try to fix the problems of the world in a way that I can like sell you stuff? Are you sure we can't make this work or get something? God's plan for unity in Jesus from the book of Ephesians. Therefore, remember, now he's addressing Gentiles, he's addressing non-Jewish people here. And that's all of us, except for about 18 to 20 million people in the world right now. Therefore, remember that at one time, you, nations, sometimes Gentiles, sometimes non-Jews, nations in the flesh, according to your bodies, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision so the jews would call themselves the circumcision at this time everybody else would be called the uncircumcision which is made in the flesh by hands remember that you were and i put these numbers in here just to break it apart at that time so before jesus before he was raised from the dead before you could come to him through faith before that time remember all you had to look forward to in life number one you were separated from christ Number two, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, meaning you had no, um, like, genetic right to be part of the people of God. Number three, you were strangers to the covenants of promise, meaning that you had no legal right to be part of the people of God. And with the consequence, number four, of having no hope, and number five, being without God in the world. This is normal existence for everybody separated from the messiah alienated uh, by genes from the people of god not a blood descendant of abraham strangers of the covenants of promise so like again having no legal rights you're not a citizen of god's kingdom so you have no rights in his kingdom And because of that, having no hope, this is your life. You get 80 years, you can try to squeeze as many pleasure chemicals out of your brain as you can get, and then terrible forever. And ultimately just separated from God and the world, finding all matter of false gods and no gods to worship and give your hearts and your minds and your lives to, but ultimately the catastrophe of reality will come crashing through the door and you'll find out that it was all an utter waste. But now, here's a great but now. Everybody's encouraged up to this point. But now, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, Jew and Gentile alike, and all of the nations potentially within the Gentile category, and has broken down in his destroyed and tortured and pierced and flailed flesh the dividing wall of hostility of by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might you know you might think like the the dietary laws that separated people from even sitting together for a meal that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two so making peace And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What died on the cross in Jesus Christ? Not Jesus, because he came back. No, the hostility between the peoples of the world was crucified in him. Because by coming back from the dead and offering free salvation and reconciliation with his father and brotherhood with him through faith, He has made one new race, one new humanity, one new people through the cross. And right now, for all who believe, we have access in the one Holy Spirit to the Father. This is the unpopular piece. People who do not deserve it and cannot earn it made one through something that will only result in Jesus Christ getting praise and honor and glory forever. And if we'll have it, 
where all we bring is the problems that need to die and the need for God to give us everything, we can be one. In the Spirit. So why do we need this? Well, I thought it would be interesting to give a brief history of the ethnoi. Dramatic pause for effect. (laughs) Because, you know, you're born into the world, you wake up one day, you look around, you're like, wow, look at how everything is. It must have always been like this. Uh, Yes and no. So one of the things the Bible provides for us, it's the Word of God. It's God's take on human history. It's God's take on sociology, psychology, anthropology, Um, It's God's take on what he wants us to know so we can know him and know ourselves. One of the things he does is he gives us the history of how we got here. And so we'll tell a few major events up to this point. So one of the major events from the history of the world is this little story called the Tower of Babel. And if you remember how this story goes, um, these are in the early days of humanity. And as the Bible tells it, you know, it's they were kind of like one people and they all have the same language. And one of the ways you can actually divide up people groups in the world is, you know, more recently we kind of do this like um, like paint chip skin color chart. Do you know what I mean? You like put all these different gradations of tan down and that's how you divide it. And that it's not super helpful. It's not super um, informative. And more realistically, like biblically, they talk about... Um, parentage like who your ancestors were and languages and languages is actually the big one Uh, languages are how you think about the world languages are who you are able to communicate with language is huge for just how you think about different people and so they were the people as we're told in the story were all one language and they say we're going to uh, build a super uber tower and we're going to build it up to the heavens. And we're going to make a name for ourselves. Now, God had said, hey, I want you people to disperse without the, throughout the world. That was the plan. I made this whole big planet. Great stuff everywhere. Go fill it up. And they're like, they do that thing, right? To it. We're just going to stay here. We're going to build a tower. The tower is going to be called um, Tower Awesome Sauce, where, where we just all just sit around talking about how cool we are all the time. And as the story goes, God comes down to investigate it, and he says something along the lines of, wow, they can really do a lot when they put their minds to it. Um, But this a lot they're doing is still in rebellion against me. And so what he did is he confused their languages. He multiplied their languages, essentially so they could no longer communicate and live together, and they all began to spread out um, looking for their own territory. Which, by the way, is one of the first examples in human history of people using scientific progress to exert themselves against the rule of God. And we still do it. Every time we invent something, we think, now we need God a lot less. We can go live our own lives. And that lasts for a couple of years, and then we wreck our own lives with what we've just invented, and then we have another generation going... Ah, it turns out that the internet just makes you an absolute slave and a hollowed-out spiritual nothingness. Maybe we should actually turn to Christ and be filled with the Spirit and have great relationships with each other instead of just self-medicating ourselves into oblivion with flashing lights. But this was the first example, because they had made these baked bricks. Imagine thinking a baked brick made you amazing. But at the time, that was the cutting-edge technology. It's as hard as a rock, but I made it in my kitchen. (laughs) There's a YouTube channel right there. That's six million views of somebody just saying that. It's as hard as a rock, but you made it in your kitchen. Bricks. (laughs) Anyhow. Yeah. So he scrambles their languages. They can no longer get along. 
to be united against God, and they disperse without the face of the earth. But of course, throughout all these languages, you just got the multiplication of conflict. Around this same time, notice it's the same chapter, God's looking at his plan. His plan isn't just to have a world that's uh, forsaken and under judgment. He, his plan is to rescue it. And so, because he can't work with a united people, because in their strength they rebel against God, he decides that he's going to pick one person and make a nation out of him in order to eventually bless all the peoples. All these peoples he's just made, the plan is to bless them in their differences and their diversities. And so he turns to this guy named Abraham. Very interesting. Now the Lord said to Abram, you will get renamed Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So interesting here, a little movement. He takes Ab- Abram in the midst of his family and his culture and his language people. And he says, I want you to separate yourself from this. And I'm going to take you and I'm going to multiply you. And I'm going to make you into a blessing that impacts all these people groups that I just made post Tower of Babel. You following with me here? But notice the little, the interesting, like, leave and go. Separate first for the blessing. All right, skipping forward a few millennia. After Jesus has died and risen from the grave, we have this moment of Pentecost, which some people would say is when the church is born. The disciples of Jesus um, are are have been convinced that he's back from the dead. He's had these resurrection appearances because they didn't believe it. They didn't believe it. Hello, they didn't believe it. They're slow to believe. They saw the dead body and bodies stay dead. But then they go to the tomb and it's empty and they're, and then they, they know it's empty but they don't know and then they, they're confused and some of them are walking away and some of them are hiding out and blah, blah, blah. But Jesus takes the time to appear to them, to convince them Um, That he's alive and he says, wait until I send the Holy Spirit on you like I promised. And the day of Pentecost happens and it's like the anti-Babel. It says this, uh, Acts 2.1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And this is a small group. What is it, 120 people or something like that? Anybody remember numbers? This This is like the first five rows of us. Is the entire church. Like all the people in the world that believe in Jesus. Now we can get proud. Man, we're doing so much better than the early church. Look at this. It goes all the way to the back. Okay. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And if you remember reading the story, it goes on from them. And they spill out of their prayer meeting. And because Pentecost happened during one of these times when the Jewish people were coming from all over the Roman Empire to worship. It was one of their uh, uh, holiday seasons. Um, There's people from all over the world there, and the disciples are spilling out, and the Holy Spirit is speaking through them in languages from all over the world, and people from all over the world are like, hey, they're talking in my my language. Hey, they're talking in my language. I didn't think I'd meet another guy from Parthia here. And I'm hearing praises from God from this. And what you see here is this like reversal of Babel, where God came down on Babel the first time and judged it and broke their languages apart. Now God has come down in the Holy Spirit this time and has empowered all these the church, which is all Jews, to be able to sing the praises of God to all the nations. Conquering language divide but also cementing for all time the reality that the church is birthed for international missions. It's weird. Pentecost is weird. If you had to plan Pentecost, okay, you're planning the party when the Holy Spirit comes down. It would probably be a lot of, like, healing miracles. 
wouldn't it? You know, let's get on those wheelchairs. Let's put that wheelchair store out of business. Access mobility is gone. Right? To do this, like to unscramble the languages or to cause people to, so that every um, people group, and I think they're Jewish, but they, they have their, their home languages from where they've traveled from. They're hearing the, the praises of Jesus in international languages right off the bat. I think God's trying to say, like, this is a missionary movement, is the church, right from when the Holy Spirit first touches down. And in time, one of the greatest opponents to these early Jewish believers, the Apostle Paul, who would try to arrest them and get them put to death legally, um, meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, is supernaturally struck blind, gives his life to Jesus as the resurrected Messiah, and devotes the rest of his life to going to these Gentile nations and teaching them about Jesus so that there would be a church in like every major city in all the Mediterranean. That was his ambition. And at some point, he writes, he plants churches in Galatia and writes a church, a letter to them and says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, that Abraham who was told he would be a blessing to all nations. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, the nations, Robert Balfour from Scotland, now living in Canada, by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations or families or Gentiles be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And if you want just like an arm movement picture, you could see it like this. There was a time when all of humanity was just one people. And as a judgment for rebellion, they were scattered into many people. But then God sent the one true man to start a new people. And now the Holy Spirit, through faith and through the reworking of the Holy Spirit, is gathering some from all those nations together again into the church, which is the new man, and Christ Jesus expressed throughout the world. And he's made that peace through his blood shed on the cross. Amen. Thank you. I'll take that. That's the plan. And it's interesting for me, I know, because we're like, anybody grow up from around here, Steinbeck? Uh, you are somebody living in Manitoba. You're like the ends of the earth from when this started. Because, you know, you can grow up around and you can think, we're Christians. We're like, this is what we do. We're here, you know. There's church on every street corner. Every Peter, John, and Jacob has a pastor in his family. We have collectively eaten 16 metric tons of communion wafers. And drank an entire Red River of communion juice together because we've been doing this. But this, Pentecost, was literally on the other side of the planet from this. And so somehow, like this was all in this. And just as a reminder, we're the ones who don't belong. This is a hard moment. I remember, you know, I got saved when I was 18 and there was a time around when I was 20 when I was starting to hear this stuff, and it started to hit me emotionally, <laughs> not like having rejection issues, that when it talks about the people who don't naturally belong in Jesus, it's talking about me. I'm not Jewish. I don't, I don't have any... You can't... Uh, 23 and me, what's that thing called? Is that the one? The genetic testing? There's nothing in there that says, you know, I got some kind of in with Abraham. And then I'm Scottish. One thing I like about Scottish is that they're pretty good at making fun of themselves. They're very serious about doctrine and money, but other than that... Like, my people are from, like, the, the Forgotten Zone on an island totally far away. And in fact, if anything, if there was any Scottish people um, in... The Bible, we would have been slaves captured by Julius Caesar in some of his um, 
territory-expanding conquests north into Europe through France and what is modern-day France and Germany and went to England and conquered a bunch of people there. And wherever they went, they would take slaves back to Rome as part of their triumphs. So if my people group were in the Bible at all, it it would be like the slaves obey your master's part. But just so weird, though. Like, it's been 2,000 years, and they're, in one sense, it's kind of working. But in another sense, it's like uh, racial slash ethnic slash language group conflict is some of the most entrenched and violent and vigorous and caustic divisions there are in the planet, which we see afresh online like every day. But this is the plan. So I have some thoughts that we might participate well in the plan. One new man made of all different tribes and tongues. Uh, Thought number one. Be careful of judging according to the flesh. Uh, Because we have eyes, but also because of our cultures, we are super trained to make quick judgments about people according to what they look like. Right? Part of that's that intersectionality thing. You look at somebody, you size them up, you know everything you need to know about them according to their, uh, their, their Facebook page or whatever. But like we've literally been taught as believers that God doesn't work like that and we ought not to as well. So one of my favorite stories about this is when King David is chosen and anointed to be Israel's second king. You remember this story? Anybody put up your hand? If you don't know this story, back to Sunday school with you. This is like grade three Bible Sunday school stuff. Just teasing. So Israel back in the day after the book of Judges, they were often like getting beaten by their neighbors in war. And they thought that the way to finally get politically and militarily safe would be to have a king just like all the other nations. They didn't realize that it was their unbelief that was their problem and their unfaithfulness to God. Whenever they were faithful, they won. And whenever they weren't faithful, they lost. But they thought, the thing that's wrong is we don't have a king. Everybody who beats us, they got a king. And I know we need a king too. And so they, they want a king. And Samuel's really grieved. And the Lord is even grieved because the Lord is their king. And somehow they think that getting some meat sack person, you know, who has to eat food every day or he dies, is going to be an upgrade from having the living God fight their battles. Whatever. So they want this this meat sack, this uh, bone house, this like chemical blob person to be their king. And they get Saul and he looks really good. He's taller than everybody. He's like a mixture between a football player and a basketball player. So he's tall, but he's also still got some some uh, kilograms on the arms. And, and it starts off looking okay because he is good at fighting. But, you know, they asked for a king like all the other nations. And the problem with the kings of all the other nations is they always end up being self-righteous, self-absorbed, self-promoting tyrants. And so it's not long before Saul starts doing that too. And Saul becomes the most dangerous person in Israel to Israelites. Including doing some massacres of priests and stuff like this. And so it's not going well. And God says, okay, now I'm going to give you a king after my own heart. And he sends Samuel to Jesse's house. And if you remember the story, Samuel goes there and Jesse's got all these kids. He's got his own... uh, Probably hockey team's worth of kids, maybe pushing a baseball team. You know what I mean? It's, it's hockey with a, a replacement goaltender, I think is the right number. Or baseball, but one person has to do the entire outfield. Anyhow, so Samuel's sitting down at this meal, and he's looking at all these um, draft horse type guys that are just, they look like the real deal. And he keeps going, is it this one? And God goes, it's not this one. And then, is it this one? And he's just working his way down from age order, right? Is this one? It's not this one. What about this guy? No, it's not this guy. What about this guy? And, you know, they had big families back then, so this is a long process. 
And finally, they work through all the sons, and it turns out that it's little old David out in the field that isn't even important enough to come and meet Samuel when he comes for a meal. And God rebukes Samuel during this whole, whole process and says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. Talking about one of the better older brothers. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Uh, let me just put it like this. My son Timmy has Down syndrome. When people meet him, they see the initial characteristics of Down syndrome on his face. The way his eyes look, the way his nose look, the way the lips look, his body shape. I don't see that at all anymore. He is the person Timmy Balfour. And you know when you get to see people, you stop seeing them because now you see them. Am I right? You know that after whatever it is, 20 years of marriage, your wife does not look like when you first saw her. She looks so much better. Because you actually see her instead of what other people see. This is a somewhat natural process. When you spend time with someone and get to know them, you finally see them. And God's just saying like, Samuel, just remember, you don't see anything compared to what I see. But if you're lucky, I will show you what I see. So you can know people as they really are. So all I'm saying is, let's be careful. The way the world and people tend to see each other is not at all how God sees people. And God sees what's there. And so we're supposed to humble ourselves. We're just supposed to humble ourselves. Just humble ourselves. Anybody here been on the cover of like a weightlifting or magazine? Just, okay, I saw your hand, Randy. I need evidence and proof, please. Yeah, not a lot of us are supermodels here. But there are quite a few sons and daughters of the living God. There are a lot of you who the important people don't have a clue who you are. There will be a day when Jesus raises us from the dead where everyone will see who we really are and there's going to be a lot of oh no's and whoopses. <laughs> Let that one pass. Number two, be careful about adopting worldly categories. I'm going to have to go quicker here. Um, in a world that's trying to fix things and make peace, there are all kinds of ideas about how you do this and how you evaluate people and the categories you use to make things better. But when the first commitment of the nations of the world is we want to do this without having to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, you only have bad options left. Does that make sense? There's lots of people fighting for peace. But when the God of the universe says the way I'm making peace is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and unity in the Holy Spirit, and if the one thing people won't do is do peace like that, then you only have bad options left. We end up in a world where there's lots of options for categories about how to think about things that ultimately are not going to lead people to the peace of Jesus. So here's an instance from when Paul was doing some preaching. He's in Athens. Athens has always been known for its philosophers. These are the smart people. These are the people who really get it, except they don't. So Paul is preaching to them, and he's talking about Adam, and he's trying to lead them to Jesus. They don't go for it. I think people have said um, Athens was the one city that the Apostle Paul actually walked out of. Every other one, he got either carried out in a stretcher or, or smuggled out while people were trying to kill him. But this is the one place where it's like, yeah, these guys are too smart to even care that... Yeah, and he just walked out. I could be wrong, but I've heard that. 
Okay, so the Lord made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the faces of the earth. So he's talking about these nations issue again and having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. So God reigns sovereignly even over who lives where when. And the point is that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each one of us. So in case people say God is too far in heaven, we'll never be able to understand him. He said, no, 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 no. He's actually not far from us. For, and quote, in him we live and move and have our being, which I think is a quote from Plato, if not Sophocles. And even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. I don't remember who said that one. It was a much less popular philosopher. But he's using their own philosophers against them. I mean, for them, against them, for them, against them, whatever. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And thank you for bearing with me as I read this, but this is the big idea. Paul goes into Athens and he sees that there are categories for people groups is which clump of stone or molded metal you worship clear it's not a skin color issue it's not a privilege issue it's your clump worship which is how some people do it and he says truth be told you all have a common parent we were all made by one god he doesn't want you to use those categories anymore Instead, the category is this. God is now calling every kind of person to repent of their idolatry and turn to him through the man he has appointed, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the category. Are you believing in Jesus? Yes? Brother? Sister? No? Welcome to your mess. What categories do you use to think about people and divide people and evaluate people? Are they from the gospel or are they from somewhere else? Thought number three, realize there is a tragic nature to race relations. Uh, What do I mean by this? Okay, a tragedy, English major, English major. English major, least employable uh, area of study that you can do. But English major, technically a tragedy is a story where no matter how hard people try to do good or people try to do bad, it turns out terribly. Romeo and Juliet. Everybody doing their best. True love. Capulets, Montagues, united in a couple. Everybody, oh, love and blah, 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 blah. And everyone's dead. Tragedy. The opposite of that is a comedy, which is a happy ending. It always ends in a marriage. The Bible is a comedy because it ends with a happy ending of a marriage between the Son of God and his bride, the church. However, in the meantime, it seems to me, almost all efforts to make things better between the races has this tragic characteristic to it where Things go wrong even when people are trying. Things go bad even when people are trying to fix it. And it only takes one or two evil people to make it bad for millions of other people. Uh, It's a mess. Uh, It's a mess. I don't even know how, how much I want to get into this. Like, um, so Canada does put a lot of uh, time into like indigenous, non-indigenous reconciliation. Yes, true. And I think there was even like a twenty-one, twenty-three billion dollar award compensation going on recently, which I I have. Uh, I want the best. Things are so complicated. Um, 
there's this lady who's a singer who made her whole career being a Canadian indigenous woman, got the first indigenous Oscar for a song that she co-sang. Unfortunately, after like five decades of doing this, it turns out that her birth certificate actually says that she's Italian from the United States. And this isn't the first time. This happens every six months where there's somebody who has been posing as uh, uh, somebody who works into the matrix of intersectionality and they end up getting some stuff falsely. Now, I know that people are saying maybe it isn't and there's going to be controversy, but it's like your birth certificate. There was a UBC professor advocate. There was a dean of a university. There was a director from the West Coast. There was Elizabeth Warren. Like, it's so messy. Anytime you have a system of promotion and demotion based on stuff, you get manipulation and it wrecks things for everybody. I don't know if you heard about it. This was a few months ago. The, like, biggest tech employment for women conference happened. And there were, like, hundreds of guys there. Because there's a box that you could tick on the gender thing that said, like, buy or none. And they're, they're broke and unemployed. And they say, I'll be by for a day to get a job. And so they go to this. It's a mess. And sometimes it's bad actors. And sometimes it's as bad as, like, terrorists wanting to provoke world war in order to inspire people to hate their enemies. And all of it's got this tragic nature that I think you, we just need to go like, there is going to be bad news about people groups until we see the face of Jesus. Are you going to be controlled by it? Are you going to be inflamed by it? Are you going to be manipulated by it? Or are you going to put your head down to the cross and keep following Jesus in the plan? Number four, slightly different thought here. Uh, Realize that there are better and worse expressions of relative righteousness coming through cultures. What do I mean by this? Uh, When things between people groups become particularly inflamed, um, everyone becomes terrified about saying anything about anybody. True? You just know, you say this, your job's gone, you say that. Your fallback job is gone. You know, it's, it's, it's just a time where there is so much anxiety about even saying anything about anything, about anything, about anything. Now, interestingly, the Bible, because of its confidence that any type of people group can be one in Jesus, leverages that to say, now that we are one in Jesus, let's talk about how you actually live. Does that make sense? Like, once you are unified in the confidence of Christ, you can actually say, you're doing some stuff that's not so good, brother. Because we are brothers and sisters. And there's something about not being able to talk about each other that betrays that we don't actually feel like we're in this together. So my favorite one is those poor Cretans. Um... The island of Crete is one of the larger islands in the Mediterranean. It's right at the south of the whole Greek island archipelago. Is that what it would be? Anyhow, um, Paul planted a church there, it looks like, and he left this guy named Titus there to build it up. And there's this great quote, these poor Cretans. You just think like, you wanted to be having a good day when you ran into Bible authors because they wrote about you and, uh, you know, whatever. It says, for there are many who are insubordinate. He's talking about setting up good elders, empty talkers, especially, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. So people advocating that Christians needed to get circumcised like Jews, which was not true. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching their, for shameful gain what ought not to be taught. This <laughs> is so good. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Verse 13, this testimony is true. <laughs> Laugh. It's like somebody put out a meme. Cretans are a bunch of, like, they'll treat you like garbage. Don't vacation there. And Paul's like, yes. 
Therefore, now this is what I'm talking about. There is a judgment about the island's culture. It's not a skin color thing. It's not a hereditary thing. It's not saying you can never get better because of your genes. How you have been living is not how God would want you to be living. And he says it's true. And they even know it themselves. So, he says, Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Because we're in. Stop living like that. I was really impacted during the whole um, BLM, um, George Floyd upheavals from a few years ago. This one lady who was sharing her testimony about how she used to be a Marxist reconciliation advocate in South Africa. She's from the States. But like Marxist is this idea that every type of uh, people can be divided into two, one being like the uppers and the lowers, the oppressors, the oppressed, the victims, and the victimizers. And your job is to identify these things and then destabilize the upper ones for the advantage of the lower ones. But it never leads to peace. And Marx never even thought they would lead to peace. He thought human history was just conflict between people groups. And sometimes one of them kills the other, and sometimes they kill each other. He thought those were his options. Just, just read it. Just go read the Communist Manifesto. You only have to get a few pages into it where it's like, this is the world. Two groups. They fight. One wins, or they both die. Hopeful. Anyhow, she, she said she was a Christian. People confronted her. Are you sure this is biblical? And so she started this whole program um, and teaching series. And she's like, actually, if you read Ephesians, you find out that when you're in Christ, you're family first. You start in, and then you figure out the problems as family. You figure out the problems as family. And I was just like, you're right. That is what the Bible teaches. When, you're, when we're all in, in Jesus, then you treat each other like you're in, and you can even say to your Cretan brother and sister, you're fulfilling those prophetic words about you, and you don't have to anymore because of the Holy Spirit that lives in you. And we're family. Realize that every people will only be saved by grace. Whether or not there's... And that's why I had the word relative righteous in there. I'm not saying that they're winning, saving righteous. But there is like different types of people. And there is like a relative being like God or not. I've got one more point after this. Realize that every people will only be saved by grace. This comes from Romans one of the big burdens of the book of Romans is trying to explain, again, this relationship between Jews and Gentiles, both needing Jesus, both needing forgiveness, both need to become one. But this big, one of the big problems is that in the early days after Jesus died, hardly any Jews came to faith. Most Jewish people didn't come to faith. It's a bit of a crisis. They thought he was your savior. How come nobody's coming? And typically, when the Apostle Paul would go and plant churches, he would go to a city, he'd go preach to the synagogues, they would reject him, then he would go to the Gentiles, and they would believe him. That was a pattern, over and over and over again. And so he has to talk about this. And one of the things he says is he's looking at human history over the millennia, and he says, we're in the age of the Gentiles, or the nations right now, where tons of them are coming in through faith in Jesus. They're being grafted in. They're being attached to Abraham through faith. They're being attached to the covenant promises. And right now, speaking of his own time, the uh, Jewish people have hard hearts and they aren't being grafted in. But there will be a day when there's a big turning to the Lord amongst the people who have the covenants and have the promises and are the descendants of Abraham. And that will be like life from the dead. And what we're all going to say when it's all done is this. For just as you, Gentiles, were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their Jewish disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy, meaning they'll see God working in you and be jealous and want to come. But this is going to be the end of time. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. 
when we're around the throne, (coughs) there's only going to be people who say, I don't belong here. No matter what your skin does, what your blood does, what your genes tell you, everyone around the throne is going to know in their knowers, I don't belong here. But God chose me and saved me. Jesus died for me and he bled for me. He purchased me because he wanted me. And now every tribe and every tongue are gathered together, singing together from a place of unmerited mercy as we see the kindnesses of God. Which is the last point. What we ought to do as the people of God is want brothers and sisters in the Lord from everywhere. Because the plan is to make a new man out of every tribe and tongue and all people groups throughout all the world. Our heart should be like, I want brothers and sisters of every single kind. And I want to give towards it and multiply services towards it and help people go on missions towards it because we want the biggest family possible made up of the differentest people possible to show that Jesus Christ is the greatest peace possible. And the people are the treasure. God is going to destroy the whole earth someday. But the thing that's going to get through the fire is his people because they are his treasure. They're our treasure. They're his treasure. People are the treasure. Different people are the treasure. They're the best part of being Christian next to Christ. You're the best part of my job. To get you To have you, to know you, you're what makes it worth it next to obeying Jesus and being filled with the Spirit. 